You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Dr. Laura Villa is a trauma and stress specialist with City Living Psychology. She focuses on helping people develop stress resilience and workplace well-being. Laura is passionate about helping people getting unstuck from what holds them back and how to live a more fulfilling life. Based on your value, she believes that understanding the interplay between trauma, workplace stress, and mental health is essential to promote well-being in the workplace. Trauma is an experience, not an event. Chronic stress has an impact. Trauma distorts neuroception and creates defensive reactions. Did you know when you're in a state of great resilience, then things bounce off you? Insights into resilience is a trending area of interest. When you are in a state of fight, flight, or defense, then those stimuli result in hyper-reaction aggressiveness, or a sense of being hurt. If the autonomic nervous system is in a state of shutting down, you are what's called dissociative. You don't even recognize what's being said to you. Understanding this is critically important for creating well-being in your organization. How often do we talk about addictions in the workplace? How do addictions affect the individual, the team, if not the whole organization and beyond? Does your workplace have solutions to improve employee emotional well-being? We are saying, my goal in life is to co-regulate with someone, to feel safe. The vagus nerve is 80% sensors. The fibers are sensory. It's a surveillance system. It tells you whether you can be open to the world or closed to the world. Dr. Laura Villa, I appreciate you joining the conversation. How did you get into this area of work, by choice or by chance? Oh, absolutely by choice, I have to say, definitely by choice. So you always knew you wanted to study this and where you were going to go? Oh, no, definitely. I mean, since I was a child, I was interested in psychology. Then my clinical training is really, really enjoyed. And when I was at the end of my training, I just made my way to the UK. And here I am, 13, 14 years later, practicing as a clinical psychologist in London. I really appreciate your work around the workplace addictions. My audience members who have no idea how workplace addictions or why they're important, can you just bring that to the conversation? Yeah, I mean, consider that as a clinical psychologist, that people come to see me mainly because of really feeling under pressure at work and the problems that they normally bring. It's not necessarily addictions as such, but what they come with is wanting to work around, you know, sort of reducing the stress levels. And what we find when we start exploring and working together is that most of these people, I find they are stuck in unhealthy patterns of behaviours, which include using maladaptive strategies to make themselves feel better. These strategies can go using drugs, alcohol, overworking, because we identify as overworking as gain a sort of pattern of behavior that they use to reduce stress by working more. 
that becomes an addictive behavior as well. Some people find themselves stuck in sexual behavior, being hypersexual, but then, you know, food and gambling, these are the sort of addictions that come up the most. And it's really interesting because they don't come necessarily because of this reason. They don't think necessarily these are problems they want to face. They come more for anxiety and depression. But then we identify that these stuckness loops are really the ones that need exploring and need addressing. Oh, absolutely. I know in the end of last century, in the beginning of this century, I was working 60, 80, 100 hour work weeks, parenting four children. And most of my colleagues had a wife and a mother and people who would help. But women, for me, I didn't find there was a heck of a lot of support for women, sadly. If there was a dental appointment and I had to take my child to the dentist, I had a lot of explaining to do because there were meetings and dentists are not always that flexible about you changing appointments because there's an emergency meeting about an acquisition or a merger or something like that. And then you're worried, well, you know, I'm replaceable, you know, and I'm the primary caregiver. And then, you know, these days added to that conversation is how you can be the sandwich generation with your children as well as with elder or unwell or disabled family members. Absolutely. I would agree with you on that. For sure. So how do you develop stress resilience? This is sort of a piece of work that takes a little while in terms of a few therapy sessions. The idea is really to become aware of the challenges that you're facing and to sit with pain points. So exploring together what is happening in your life, make links. So identify what belongs to the past. Because, you know, for some people that is rooted in trauma, sitting with those uncomfortable feelings, but then really looking at how there are three levels, if you like, looking at how our nervous system responds to our environment, how we pick up clues of safe and trap, looking at what we bring from our past, because obviously we have developed strategies in that way. But then looking at our strengths point, so thinking about what we do already that we can sort of strengthen. And it's really about sitting with these uncomfortable feelings, identify patterns of behavior that gets us stuck. And this is the addiction part. And then taking courageous actions. So discussing together based on our values, what steps we would like to do that we think can take us towards the life that we want to live. So it's quite complex, as we presented at the beginning, but actually it's quite a process that people then are really willing to embrace, especially when starting talking about values that clearly give direction that is a powerful one. Oh, absolutely. And I really just want to touch on a couple of points that you made. I have shifted my paradigm that thoughts and feelings are visitors. So let me welcome them and maybe even have a conversation as crazy as it sounds, listen to what they've got to say, because it could be the body speaking, you know, it could be your soul speaking. We're quite complex as human beings, but by checking them into my present as visitors means I can welcome, accept the wisdom and let go of the junk and wish them well on their journey and send them back out into the world. I really liked another point that you made stuckness what a great word I have very recently well this month actually started looking at what are the thoughts that I bring in from yesterday last week last century from my childhood what are the feelings that are still around that are actually not part of the present but I have dragged that baggage into the present I believe there's research out there that for some people, up to 50% of what they say, do and think is a product of what they've done yesterday and the day before. So 
an alert, a flag for me that that's habituated conditioning. It's not evolving. And really, we can only change ourselves in at present. Yesterday's gone and tomorrow's not even promised. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that because one of the questions that I always ask when we start to look at our difficult patterns, you know, patterns that don't work very much or don't work anymore, we work on this behavior, you know, so this addiction, for example, using drugs or using alcohol. Does that work in the short term? And most people would say yes, because it's really helping me, you know, I feel a sense of relief. It's really suiting for me. It makes me stop thinking about it and I can take a break. But then when we think about does it work in the long term, that's normally a no answer. So you would say actually long term doesn't serve me anymore. But it's interesting what you say about the past, because then we look at where did you learn this behavior? So where is this behavior coming from? Why are you still using it if it doesn't serve you in the long term? And what we find is that if you think about coping strategies, we keep the coping strategies that have really been helpful for us in the past. So as you try to survive along the way, you know, the many challenges of life, even as children, we would build the set of skills and strategies that really work for us. The big question is, now that you are an adult and you are here coming to see me and your circumstances have changed, does that coping strategy still work for you? Is it still something that you need to keep or can you start dropping the strategy because it doesn't really serve you anymore? And this is when the conversation around values is brought up because people who have families or people who have really strong opinions about themselves and have an image that they want to maintain about themselves, those coping strategies don't really fit that image anymore. They don't like themselves as a person anymore. So it's just really thinking about, okay, then this strategy has really been protective for you, has done an amazing job for you, but maybe you don't really need it now. What can you do instead? What is a better strategy that is serving you more and is also more fulfilling? And this can be quite a powerful conversation, thinking of this strategy, where did it come from and whether we still need it. can be quite eye-opening, actually. So much wisdom and power statements in what you said. And I can use myself as an example, sitting in that great pandemic pause last year in quarantine, thinking I don't want to be before the courts. I don't necessarily want to be dealing with a lot of clients and a lot of drama and trauma and battling and leaning into my values. One of my top values is having conversations. And when I realized a podcast could be my virtual speaking podium, I also had to realize that this was going to leave a legacy of thought leadership in the digital sands of time. It will be around in perpetuity. So I want the best quality that I can bring and also the less discussed conversations. Uh, just to move back to addictions in the workplace, in my experience, and it's only my experience and my observations, is often an issue is identified and then you're sent to an external provider you don't know and you're, as a senior leader, out in the public trying to find your courage to share before you're even feeling safe. So what can organizations do? Because it really needs to start in the home, the workplace with yourself. 
Yeah, and this is, you know, it's a great question because uh, I think there is a lot that workplaces can do, to be honest, workplaces in relation to, you know, sort of supporting employees and uh, promoting mental health and well-being. I think all organizations are really on task at the moment. They are really on board. However, sometimes it's thinking about the small things. So I hear from my clients that they all attend the trainings and uh, the conversation is there. But then they don't feel that uh, there is a much change for the individual at their level. And thinking about the nervous system, for example, and how we identify, you know, clues for safety and threat. Sometimes it's just really going back to basics in terms of the co-regulation. You know, how can you co-regulate together? And we know that our nervous system responds to sort of what reads as a threatening environment. So promoting connections between people, conversations, opportunities for really checking in with individuals. In my work with people who return to work from sick leave, one of the obstacles that people feel they have is often with line managers. And if you think about it, line managers, the first point of contact for someone who returns to work after sick leave. And sometimes it's just really arranging meetings that really feel genuine where the interest for the person is at the forefront of meeting. Not so much the task, but thinking really human connections, creating opportunities to sort of, you know, we would say checking in with each other can also be making sure that monitoring that people don't overwork. And I know that's a difficult one because there is a pressure of working more, especially people who have been, you know, in this pandemic, working from home. You probably have heard so many people saying, you know, I'm leaving at work. So, creating opportunities to actually set boundaries because boundaries is communicating to our system protection. You can close up, calm down and regain energies. So all interventions at very, very low level, I think, are the most essential to the person. And then, of course, just to complete the conversation, is thinking about in relation to your values. If there is a culture of this kind, then values will be aligned. So you feel actually that you belong. And again, belonging means safety, doesn't it? So it's just really thinking about those core regulation, self-regulation, ability to connect, reciprocity, all are very important human skills, isn't it? All communicate sense of safety, I would say. Absolutely. And I love your focus on values. World Values Day is the 21st of October. And this podcast is supporting the World Values Day Foundation in the hopes of engaging more consciousness in organizations and leadership around values. We need more compassionate companies. And just to touch on what you just said, you know, going from a hellish to a happier workplace often starts with yourself. You take yourself to work and you could be the kinder manager. You could be the compassionate leader. But when you bring yourself home and you're in your remote virtual workplace, secret confessions here, I'm working on this. <laughs> my hellish work practices into my home office. It means I have to be really careful not to be going back to working really long hours, seven days a week. I think my worst was I went for 21 days straight and realized I hadn't had a break. You know, every day I was on it. And, you know, I have a little startup with the podcast and I am loving doing it, but I would like it to be a happier and healthier workplace and certainly lean into my values of self-care and reducing being over-responsible. So I like the way that you're suggesting that organizations can be more vulnerable and help people deal with life. 
I've also heard some of the leading edge managers and leaders saying, I now will contact a member of my team I haven't heard from to check in, not to ask if you're on task, but to ask, are you okay? Is there anything that you need? Developing relationships and work hours around water coolers and after work drinks may be one thing, but now we're not at the water cooler. So how do you create the virtual water cooler? The after hours social remedy, the uncomfortable, the unknownness. People are no longer in strange places. They're trying to do all this virtually. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting because one of the things that my clients, when we brainstorm about what do you think you need from your colleagues, what do you think you need for yeah. your manager, most of them come up, but they all think about body systems. They all think about mentoring. So they do think about that human connection, that one person that is fully aware of you, as you in the mind, holds you in the mind. And there is care, you know, there is clearly a communication of someone that cares. Uh, and I think this is really important because we are all disconnected from each other physically. And that I think depends also on generations because I find different people at different ages that would feel more or less comfortable with using the front of the screen and communicating with others. So the younger are a little bit, maybe feel a little bit more flexible, but then the ones who really miss the connections because they want to go out and enjoy, there is that aspect of going to work and then socializing with your colleagues that is very much missed. So it's really complex, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm originally from New Zealand and I've been in New Zealand with my grandson and the amount of suicides that were happening in his peer group, even his teacher at primary school committed suicide. Zealand can be a very isolated place because there are not that many generations there. People have moved out there in the 1920s, the 60s, the 70s, and more recently this century. So you don't have all the intergenerational connections and New Zealand's quite conservative. So it can take a little bit of work on building community in that. But what are you seeing in your area now? What are the top trends that workplace could be very aware of since people are still remote and virtual? And this actually may become this new norm. Some people will really like the fact that they don't have to go into the office as much. You know, it's really mixed. It's really mixed because I think at the beginning of the pandemic for the first six to eight months, this was new and not knowing where we were going. So they were just really sitting with that and staying with that. And now what I find in my experience with my clients, there is a mixed opinions and mixed responses to possibly going back to work. Some people start feeling very, very anxious about going back to work. And to be honest with you, when you think again about our nervous system, obviously there are the individual circumstances, but in terms of our nervous system, we have been living with a real external track, which is the pandemic. So even leaving the house, you're not safe. Have you got your mask? Are you washing your hands? Do you have your gel in your pocket? When you go to the supermarket, you know, make sure that you sanitize your trolley. So actually, it's been a very real experience for everyone. So our system has sort of search for safety and threat cues that we have been talking about is a very real one experience. When people are now starting to connect with the idea of going back to work, that is traveling by train or so being on the tube, for example, here in London, or would be, am I, is it safe to mix with some of my colleagues? Is it safe to share an office? Is the ventilation going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? You know, and what if? So there is a lot of what if. 
And this is why I think also knowing that for some working from home has really served them at different levels. I hear most people who like thinking of a part-time position. What about coming back to work, but only for two days? And I guess that's sort of safe enough. And you're sort of more maybe flexible and open to that idea. You can sort of cope better if it's not just uh, coming back full time and uh, being a risk for mine full time. This is what I find, whether that's uh, sort of something that you share as well, uh, where you are. Well, actually, yeah, there's a huge emphasis on being vaccinated and that's causing a lot of anxiety in the community because I'm on a very small island, so people can't travel. So vaccinations are very much being pushed and you can't come back to work if you haven't had both your vaccinations and things like that. So there's a lot of stress around and anxiety around that. What do we really know? So I'd like to segue into the vagus nerve. The person that I know, Stephen Porges, developed the polyvagal theory focusing on your psychological state. And the vagus nerve is running through our whole body and major organs as 80% sensors. Fiber is the sensors and it's surveillance system. Exactly what you're saying. It's determining whether you're open to the world or closed to the world. But I don't think a lot of people realize we still have the ancient vagus, most of it, and it connects with all the organs below your diaphragm. And its primary role is to regulate the gut. So a lot of people are not realizing their autoimmune systems and their gut problems and those types of things actually could be related to the health of your vagus nerve or the comfort of your vagus nerve, which is your security surveillance. So there's evidence of a comorbidity with irritable bowel, gastric bowel system trauma. So that came about because we've come from ancient vertebrates. And when they're under challenge, metabolic output is going to be in trouble if digestion, because digestion is a costly energy user. So basically that ancient system starts in our brainstem and it shuts us down. Like certain things in nature, they appear to the world dead. In a human and today, we experience dissociation, that freezing, getting out of our body or being disembodied. Can you speak to that in your practice, um, what you would suggest people and organizations can start considering? Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really interesting because I do have this type of conversations with my clients. So it's interesting because at an individual level, when I explain how the nervous system works, the way you think, it's about getting to know your nervous system. So for someone who experiences the type of problems that you describe, you're just really thinking about what is that about? So it's not about trying to push the problem away. It's trying to understand where is that coming from, how our system responds, and how can we bring ourselves to a position of safety. So what I do, for example, with my clients is mapping our nervous system. So thinking about how does those feel like and look like, you know, you can imagine do some exercise about drawing and colors. And then thinking about how uh, your sympathetic system looks like and bringing you back to ventral in terms of bringing you back to safety. So it's about, as you experienced this, just really acknowledging where you are. And then how can you assess, how can you go back? to feeling calmer and rebalance yourself, regulate yourself. Organizations are made of individuals, isn't it? So I guess it's how can you extend these very principles to an organization? And I wonder whether this is really thinking about the structure of an organization, but also thinking about what in an organization can be perceived as threatening and how can that be made more safe. Clearly, it's about communication. It's about who you work with. It's also about the space, you know, offices, connecting with each other in space, thinking about 
safety in terms of going back to the working hours. Because if you tell someone, this is the deadline, and I need you to read this report of 500 pages, and that has to be done by two days, obviously, we all have deadlines, I understand that. But if that is the routine, our system is clearly feeling under fact, isn't it? So it's thinking about monitoring work. So making sure that things get done, but also acknowledging when people are put under a situation of stress and whether that is ongoing. I think the importance is about not pretending that we work less necessarily, but it's how can we work in an environment that feels safe for everyone? Also, because you mentioned earlier, thinking about tension difficulties with the using alcohol and drugs, that also impacts on our ability to maintain focus, stay attentive. So it's all part of the same, isn't it? And I think trainings are important for organizations. After a training, for example, almost having someone that, you know, how can the training cascade at a practical level in different teams? So that's another way to make it personal, because otherwise the training is just words. You know, people sort of don't really stay with it, but making it personal so that people take ownership and becomes cultural and important for everyone. Really great points, really great points. I know for myself personally, I have used prayer, meditation and yoga to move into being rather than doing. But I'm going to give a shout out for a company that I've been watching, Sun Life. Sun Life has actually introduced yoga to their worldwide companies. And they've got a young lady teaching that who is a member of staff. I really think there's a beautiful impact in terms of getting back to the goal of well-being and health, which is getting re-embodied. And this is an international company that's taking it to its offices around the world in terms of yoga. It's fabulous. You are immediately in the present. You're stretching and relaxing and re-engaging. And although it's being done virtually, you're in a group experiencing the same things. And I'm sure a few giggles around the struggles as well. So that's one company that I've got my eye on that I really like during the pandemic that they've introduced yoga for their teams. Yeah, absolutely. In London too, I have to say yoga, meditation, mindfulness, just really providing that portfolio of activities that people can pick and choose. I would say uh, making sure that they don't happen at lunchtime because I have come across the people who don't skip lunch because of having an activity. So I guess as to how can you make it work for everyone, but especially not the skipping lunches. Sometimes I discussed even sitting at the desk while you're having your sandwich and checking emails. That's quite detrimental. You know, if it's only a 15 minutes lunch, how can you make that 15 minutes really valuable and restful? So closing that laptop, you know, not checking the emails. But that takes an individual responsibility. So that's another one for sure. Well, your point to closing the laptop, I think screen sucking, being online is such a huge addiction. I'm going to add to my series around digital addictions because the, the world pushes us towards that. So, Laura, I really appreciate all your wisdom. I would love for you to share about the work that you do and anything else that you'd like my listeners to know about you. Yeah, thank you. I'm based in London and interesting, I, I say this, but I have been working online for the past years myself and, and I've actually quite enjoyed working online somehow. So I work, still provide therapy to individuals and it's very much focused around trauma and stress because it is my areas of expertise. Is, uh, I have a passion around really helping people 
overcome challenges they face in this very modern life, but also healing from past traumas, which, you know, I find that they are so relevant, especially at this time, you know, this year with the pandemic is going to be a societal trauma. At different degrees, people have suffered trauma during this pandemic. Work individually with people around stress, work stress and trauma. And I've developed, so there is therapy there, but also a program where I have a set number of sessions where uh, together with um, looking at the polyvagal and uh, accepted commitment therapy approaches combined, I provide a set of videos, resources, all type of material that support our work. And working with organizations, I've been uh, talks, trainings. I really like working with line managers because as we were saying earlier, I just really found that line managers are such an important part of the organization in relation to promoting wellness. And with HR, because uh, HR, what I find, some of my clients, especially the one returning to work after sick leave, um, there is this ambivalency around HR. They don't know whether HR works for the organization or is actually a resource I have. And I think really working with HR, promoting that sense of belonging, inclusiveness, helping them connect more. I think that's part of my mission, what I would like to do in relation to uh, how can a child really become that sort of more, su- not supportive, you don't want a child to, you know, be the psychologist in the room, but just really thinking about connection and safety, isn't it? So if a child might be perceived on occasions as an easy attract to me, actually, how can that be sort of moved to a position of safety? Because that's all about promote positive relationships. And creating opportunities for co-regulation between line managers and HR. I don't think it's better than that. And hopefully senior leadership can support that action. I'll also ensure that there is a guide, a link to your three-step guide to managing anxiety thoughts on in the show notes as well. And, And I really appreciate your work around trauma and work stress and return to work. Well, Dr. Laura Villa, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you sharing your time, thoughts and wisdom. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.